1 John chapter 4, this is where we are going to be in verses 1 through 6 today. Uh, If you have the ESV uh, version, which a number of you do, it's what we typically read from here week to week, um, you'll probably notice the heading, Test the Spirit. Um, Other versions, older versions, uh, or maybe a new international version, if you have that one, uh, where I grew up, it it might even say um, uh, defending the incarnation or something of that nature. Um, Some really, really powerful stuff here. Look, as we've approached this section, you'll read these six verses and we'll read it together. It will sound in some ways, John's language is very similar. The way he speaks is similar. But the things he says in these these six short verses are are markedly different in the sense that we've heard love and love one another and and all of these types of things. He really is going to dial back into chapter 2 and some of the things he's told these churches that he's speaking to to be on the lookout for these false prophets, these voices, these things that are happening in these churches that are, that are seeking to distract them from the truth of who God is in Jesus Christ, all right? So this is 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. It says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is the word of the Lord to which we say, thanks be to God. Um, He starts in this way. He says, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit's. So there's this shift, this language of of spirits and testing of spirits that John is seeking to give these believers in these churches. And at first glance, if we just kind of read this uh, in a cursory way, we read it very quickly, it might seem very out of place in the text. But if you'll look back to 1 John chapter 3 and verse 24, which says this, you'll see the connection John's making. He says, whoever keeps his commandments and abides in God and God in him... And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So John is making this very direct demarcation. He's saying, look, there's a, there's a very clear defining line between the spirit, the Holy Spirit that indwells believers, the Holy Spirit that lives in us, that has awakened us to life in Christ, There's a very real difference in that spirit and other spirits. So what's happening here, what's at play here, is that as John describes the Holy Spirit that exists within believers, he also acknowledges that there are other spirits. And he's trying to teach these believers, and God by his spirit is trying to teach you and I through his word, what are the spirits that we are to trust he starts in this way. He says, beloved, um, this, is, uh, this is how I would describe the way John does this. He, he, he uses these terms of affection that gets somebody's attention. 
So, uh, so my daughters, Millie and Clover, often I can say their name and I can say Millie, 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 right? That's, that's how I typically try to get her attention. But you know what really works to get her attention is when I get down on her level and I look her in the eye at her height and I say, sweetheart, it's that term of affection, that term that lets someone know that what's being said is coming from one who cares, coming from one who truly seeks the very best for that person. This is what John is doing, and this is why he writes in this way, and he says, beloved, so these believers, these are people that he's affectionately drawn toward in Christ, and this is what he says. He says, do not believe every spirit. So he acknowledges that there are other spirits in the world. There are other spirits other than the Holy Spirit. But what are they? What do those look like? How do they manifest themselves? He indicates the spirits in those who are not true by stating many false prophets. So, so that word spirit there that he uses can ultimately be the utterance or, or, or kind of the, the, the manifesting, the fleshing out, the speaking of some voice, or it can be a person that is saying this thing. What's a false prophet? John has been very clear in this writing, and we know this directly from the text, but also historically, that, that in these churches that he's speaking to, there are these two, ultimately, types of people that are seeking to cause the church harm. One group is a group of, that, that is typically kind of labeled cessationist. And that just means that they have seceded, they have come out, they have gone away from the church. They've left the church specifically with reference to the fact that, that they don't fully trust, believe Jesus Christ's divinity. That they don't believe in an orthodox, true, Christian way that Jesus is God and man in the flesh. They don't believe this and there's others, these Gnostics, these folks, and this is why John really presses in on the love one another aspect of, of what it means to not just believe the gospel, but to live in and exist in that gospel and then subsequently live it out to demonstrate love to people because there's this group called the Gnostics and they think, well, you just have a spiritual experience and it's this spiritual thing and it affects you in a spiritual way but it doesn't have any impact, any ramifications for your actual life. So the Gnostics would be people who would say, yeah, I had a spiritual experience, but their lives would ultimately be characterized in ways that the world would see as simpatico with itself. Very immoral. No, no morality. No, no love for one another. No looking out for the neighbor. Very hedonistic type life. So these are the type of false prophets. And then you and I are given, and John's hearers are given, this practical point about what to do about these spirits. These things that are said and these people who speak them. Are these things true? The things that we're hearing from people about God, are they true or are they not true? 
Now, I know that we live in a world, and, and I, it's not my favorite term, right? But, but in the secular arena, all right, in our jobs, in our day-to-day life, there are often people that we deal with. And I would imagine that, look, it's my job to talk about God all the time, all right? You guys get that. I get that often it's not your vocational job to talk about God all the time. And you might live in a workspace uh, or in a family or in a place where, where, where you don't talk about God all the time. It's just not something that's consistent. It's not something you do. But the reality is it does happen. You have conversation about God, who God is. Formative times in your life, in high school and in college and in your young professional life and adulthood and beyond where you've talked to a number, a vast number of people in your life, I would imagine, about who God is, what he's like. And often those conversations are really nebulous and I think this and you think that and this is what I've heard or I feel this, right? John seeks to really provide a genuine test. Something that believers can cling to. Something that that allows there to be an objective, definitive assurance about who God is. Not like what I think based on my prior life experiences or some books I've read or things like that. Or just what I feel, but what is true. According to the scriptures. So here's what he means by test. It means to examine. It means to scrutinize. And ultimately this. To find out if it's genuine. So John's big ask is this. He's saying, look, you need to test the spirits to see if they're genuine. To see if they're of Christ or not. We've got to have a means. We've got to have a way to do that. We need a criteria. Look, um, those of you that, that are married or engaged, you probably have uh, a, a familiar scenario as such as this to my life. Um, you, in, in, in asking the person that you hope to be your bride-to-be, if you get married, gentlemen, um, there was probably this kind of little song and dance deal where y'all, y'all talked about an engagement ring, right? Anybody? Some of you guys got off the hook. I don't understand this. Um, look, you, you went and you purchased an engagement ring. And when you went to do that, you probably learned the four C's. You learned these things about a diamond that you didn't know, right? I, I had to remember them again. Look, cut, color, clarity, and carat weight. The latter being the most important to a number of ladies in here. But look. You learned those things because if you just look at a diamond next to another diamond, it looks very similar. If this one is one carat and this one is one carat, what's the difference? Well, when you take that magnifier and you look in there and you see the different things, the different aspects, the very facets of this diamond, and you look and you can see tiny impurities Colors, all of these things, when you really scrutinize, when you really get down to it, you can figure out what this diamond is made of. You examine it, you scrutinize it. It doesn't doesn't look the same as it does with the naked eye when you look at it. 
there's a difference because there's this criteria you've been given. There's a means by which now you have to measure this. So there's, I think there's ultimately two types of ladies in this room. There's the ladies that are like, hey, you know, let, you know let's just look and we'll see. And, you know, I kind of like something in this vein, right? And then there are the other ladies that it's like, it's this one. And if you don't get this, it's wrong. Right? But I'll never forget that process. And even going to get Mia's ring, looking at these different types of diamonds and recognizing that they are markedly different when you look close, when there's something to judge them by. John specifically gives believers in this passage two ways, two criteria to test the spirits. Here's what he says. Here's the first one, verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So John's opponents, if you look back into chapter 2 and verse 19, 1 John 2 and 19, you can see this. Um, I think we have a slide for this. Perfect. This is John describing those that have left, these cessationists. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So these people that had left the church, they've left, they've moved away from this body of believers because they no longer confess Jesus' divinity. This is crucial. This is incredibly important to what you and I believe. That Jesus has come, that God has come to us in Christ in the flesh. That this is real. That Jesus wrapped himself in the same flesh, the same humanity that you and I bear. Not an idea, not a concept. But that Jesus, in a corporeal manner, in a corporate way, he took on our flesh. John's talking about the incarnation. Jesus coming in the flesh. He specifically used the word flesh. Why? Uh, I want to read this to you. Uh, this is a quote from uh, an early church father, a theologian. Um, his name is Athanasius. Not a popular name these days, as you can imagine why. But Athanasius writes this. And this is, uh, and look, I'll put up the date, circa 319. That's probably the latest that this was written. So that's a very conservative estimate. But this is written literally in the 300s. And this is what Athanasius, this early church father, says. And the way it dovetails with 1 John here is beautiful. This is what he says. He says, you know how it is when some great king enters a large city and dwells in one of its houses. Now stop here. This is why it's important to recognize this is in the year 300. All right? It's not normal in a contemporary way for a king to come and dwell in a place but stay stay with him and go go to this place go to the year 300 and hear this you know how it is when some great king enters a large city and dwells in one of its houses because of his dwelling in that single house the whole city is honored and enemies and robbers cease to molest it even so is it with the king of all he has come into our country and dwelt in one body amidst the many. 
And in consequence, the designs of the enemy against mankind have been foiled, and the corruption of death, which formerly held them in its power, has simply ceased to be. So Jesus Christ, our King, has come, defeated the enemy in his life, death, and resurrection. And look at this last portion. For the human race would have perished utterly had, the, had not the Lord and Savior of all, the Son of God, and listen to these words, come among us to put an end to death. Come among us. Athanasius uses this language, and he is steeped in the Apostle John, and here's why. Where does that language, where does those, those words, among us, come from? This is John, John's Gospel, chapter 1 and verse 14. You know this. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen His glory. Glory is of only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This, this is crucially important for us to understand. That for us as believers, we profess Christ and Him crucified. But that's not an idea that's historical and it's actual flesh. Jesus took on the same skin, the same bones, the same organs and I'm not an anatomy person, all right, but there's other stuff. Jesus took these things on in a genuine way. That among us doesn't just mean near or around. It ultimately means within. Christ has come to us historically and truthfully in the same flesh that you and I bear. And so this is the first test. This is gospel or not gospel. This is truth or untruth. And this is the gospel. Jesus is fully God and fully man. He has come in the flesh to redeem us. He's come in the flesh to redeem us. In the same way that a king would enter a country that's not his. That's why in 1 John 3, 1, like we talked about, when John says, what kind of love is this? That word means of other countries. The same way Athanasius describes it. It's a, it's a king, it's someone from another place. From a foreign place. And this is what is so incredible. That Jesus leaves heaven for earth and takes on flesh so that you and I can have a relationship with God through him by his Holy Spirit. Amen? Christ has come in the flesh. Here's the other criteria. Look into verse 3. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So this is it. Every spirit that does not confess Christ is not from God, period. That's it. So this now delves into the territory of especially in a post Modern, post, whatever we call it today, world. Look, I have people in my life that would use this kind of language. They would say, you just got to find your truth. I, 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 I want to be sensitive 
and, and I want to I want to say to you that in no way, shape, or form do I have the market cornered on truth, but from God's grace. All right, I, this is not of Michael. All right, this is God's Spirit. I hope saying these things truly to you. But this is an oxymoron. You're just going to go find your truth. I want to explain to you language. This is a subjective objective. This doesn't work. There are not a bunch of truths. There's one truth. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and you and I live and work and know and exist with people all the time that are living in such a way where their truth, the thing they're living out, is like, I'm pretty good comparatively to my coworker, to my neighbor. Some might say to their spouse, I'm pretty good. Sounds pretty subjective. And there are people that would say there's another way, there's another thing. It doesn't have to be this. These cessationists, these Gnostics, these folks that are talking about a spiritual experience that they've had. They're talking about these things that have happened to them, this connection with God, and yet they deny Christ? We hear a lot of language and folks talk about God, and they might, in a genuine way, be talking about God the Father. But if we don't hear them at some point describe Jesus Christ the Son, and I would press it a step further and say, ultimately, the Holy Spirit that indwells us in a true triune, Trinitarian way, if, if we don't hear that from them, if they're just talking about God, it's not of Him. It's not gospel. And that sounds really terrible. I think most of you that are in here that know me, and I know a lot of you, you know that I like people. And I'm not a confrontational person, and I want to. The last thing I want us to do is is be be at odds with one another. But I'll go to odds with you over this. There is no other way. There is no other truth in any voice, anything that confesses God and yet denies Christ is not true. And so ultimately, to you in this moment, this sounds like, hey, this is a little redundant. I feel like I've heard this consistently throughout this text. Maybe not just in the past few weeks, but weeks before. Here's the reality. And this is a phrase that we've kind of embodied and taken uh, in our church. Paxton has espoused it a number of times, and I think it's brilliant and it's incredibly helpful. We have this way of saying around here that, that what it means to live in the gospel. It's not easy but it's not complicated. What John is saying to these believers is that this is not complicated. This is not cut and color and clarity and carrot weight and imperfections. And You scrutinize things. You examine things. You test to see if they are genuine. But this is it. It's these two things. Does it confess 
Jesus Christ as the Son, having come in the flesh, not an idea, not a good guy among other guys, not eccentric, but a great teacher. No, Jesus Christ, God wrapped in flesh. Life, death, and resurrection for you. That's not complicated. But you and I live in the world where the enemy would seek to make it not easy for us. To put us next to somebody that believes wholesale differently than we do, but live a morally upright and pure life. Live in such a way where maybe they abstain from certain substances or certain types of words or do all kinds of things. And you might even look at them and say, Look, I'm convicted because I think they might live in a way that, it, that is more helpful or pure or clean or, or maybe even morals or moralistic than I do. But we don't find salvation there. The Lord is our salvation. And it's him that we trust. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not is not from God. And look at verse, in, verse 4. We'll move through these very, relatively quickly. Little children, John says. So this is, again, this is that affection. He's drawing them in. He's saying, those of you that I love, listen clearly to me. He says, you are from God and have overcome them. So there's this fulfilled promise in the midst of what he's saying to them in the present. He's describing future reality to people in the present that have not experienced it yet. How can he do that? He says, you are from God and you have overcome them past tense. It is done. The victory is accomplished. How is this? Because these believers are truly born again. They're children of God. Where does that overcoming come from? What's the catalyst for? What's the fount from which this overcoming is drawn? Here's what it is. It's belief. It's belief in the gospel. It is not doing works of love to receive love from God. It is recognizing that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, trusting in, believing in this incarnation that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh He was crucified on the cross. He was buried. He was raised on the third day to resurrection life for you and me. That belief, God transforms you by his spirit and causes you to trust in the one in whom you have believed. Rejecting false teaching, overcoming these things, comes from belief. And finally, in verses 5 and 6, as they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. Look, the spirits that, that, that we would hear, and John describes it now, I think he's describing in a very apropos way what's happening today in our world. The voices of the enemy, the voices of those against the gospel are shaped by the world. And you hear these voices every day, that that what we're doing in here this morning is ridiculous. It's silly. It's old-fashioned. It's antiquated. It doesn't hold water in this new, wonderful, and glorious world that we have. With all of our technology and with all of our abilities and all the things that humans are capable of and, and all the things that we can do, the voices 
that are of the enemy are those which sound like the world and glorify the world. And then in verse 6, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. All right, this sounds pretty arrogant, just right from the bat, right? Look, if you listen to us, you know God. If you don't, not so much. That is shocking to anybody besides me. He just says it very plainly. If you listen to us, you know God. If you don't, then you don't. That sounds arrogant on the, on the surface, and it would be if John was saying this in this individualistic way. But here's what he's doing. He's fleshing it through the lens of community. There's this us language. There's this we language. It's about the people of God. And the people of God, you and I have this direct and intimate relationship with his word. And so we're people who obey, we're people who love, we're people who trust, we're people who follow. That's who we are. So when he says this, he's not being arrogant, he's ultimately being truthful. This connection between God's word and his people. And this is the thing. He says, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. I want to be very clear in a theological way, to some degree, this doesn't sound very complicated. But John would seek to, God by his spirit, through his servant John, would seek to not only tell these folks in these churches in and around Ephesus, he would seek to tell you and I this. Just as you receive Christ, so walk in him. And Journey would say it this way, don't stop believing. All right, so this is my audience. We got Journey fans in here. Um, were y'all at karaoke to Journey last night? Um, look, here's the deal. Don't stop believing the gospel. Don't move beyond this. Don't think that there's more. That there's got to be more. It can't just be this. The enemy will seek to try to deceive us by causing us to think this isn't enough. But just as we looked at in chapter 3, belief in the gospel is everything. It's absolutely everything. So he tells these hearers, these people, that it's not complicated, but you better believe this. The enemy's going to come after you, and it's not going to be easy. And even the context of our church, you're going to hear all these, or any church rather, you're going to hear voices. There are going to be people that come in, in these doors. There will be people that, that come to churches in and around our little neighborhoods. They'll seek to, to say that, no, it's, I mean, it's, well, Jesus, but maybe some other stuff too. Jesus, but it's, you got, ultimately it's about living a morally pure life. Or ultimately it's about us testing you to see to which degree you give or to which degree you serve or to which degree any kind of measuring stick in those things and that leads down this trajectory this path where anything else that that is not of christ start start going down that path and start seeing how easy it becomes to believe that jesus is just one of many things 
John says, no, this is transformative. Life is found in Jesus Christ himself. And nothing else. So the application point for you and I is this. we got to test the spirits. Like, I think it would be really helpful this week if, if you and I, whether it's with your spouse or with a friend, we connected with somebody and say, you know what, what are the voices that really speak into our lives? What are the things that we're hearing? What are the things that are seeking to, if not invest, at least infiltrate us and guide us or direct us? What are those things, who are those people that are speaking to us? And does it confess Jesus Christ or does it not? And may we be people who listen to the truth and experience consistent wisdom and discernment and knowledge that comes through the Holy Spirit and those around us that profess Jesus Christ. And look, as our worship team comes this morning, we're going to get a chance to to respond um, and in a very particular way. Um, This morning we come to the table, three of them to be specific. Um, And when we take communion here at at Double Oak Community Church, um, we actually are confessing this. This is not the idea of a body. And this is not a construct or a concept of blood. This is a physical representation, a picture, a symbol. But do not miss this. This symbol represents something deeply real. It is why when you come to the table, we will say, this is Christ's body broken for you. Take and eat. These are not words that we say that are part of some sort of liturgy that has no meaning. We're assenting to, we're pointing to the reality of Christ's real body broken for you. Because as Athanasius says, as John says, this is what we understand. If we want to have life, life had to come and die for us. And be resurrected so that we could live. These are symbols, these are pictures of real body. And real blood. Uh, A couple of things about about communion here uh, that I would say. One, and, and just... Genuinely, I would say, if you've not trusted in Jesus Christ, if you've not believed in Jesus, I would genuinely, wholeheartedly, and respectfully ask you to refrain from this meal. This is a spiritual meal for the people of God who've confessed Jesus Christ. And if that's not who you are and it's who you want to be, I pray that you would either find myself, Brian Marbury, Paxton, Joe Harvey. Joe Harvey, raise your hand. We, we, we got deacons, elders, all kinds of folks here that would love to share in how you can trust, how you can know Jesus Christ. Here's the other thing. Um, man, it, it is amazing to sing sorrows like sea billows roll. That may be where you are today. 
Some of those sorrows might even come from the reality that in many ways you have not been obedient to the Lord this week. You've trusted Christ, you know him, you love him, but there are areas of your life where, where you are in sin. And I, I want to tell you right now, there is often a voice of the enemy that would come to you and say, you can't come to this table. You're not worthy. You can't do it. Here's the reality, and hear this clearly. We, we want, we want this, this table to, to profess the truth of the gospel, and here's the truth of the gospel. The ironic thing is the thing that qualifies you for this table is that same sin. You're broken. You're sinful. You don't come to this table because you're full. You come to this table because you're hungry. And you need to experience the goodness of God in this bread and this cup. I would urge you and challenge you to confess that sin, to repent of that sin. But don't miss this meal. Don't miss this opportunity to taste in a real way. And look, we, we always describe it in this way. Uh, this is meager, right? It's very small. And it, quite frankly, from the bread standpoint, is, is not going to be as flavorful as things you've had recently, probably. But I'll tell you what it is. It is real. It is real. And it is a picture of Christ's real body broken for you. This cup, a lot more on the flavorful side. Very sweet, these guys are, all right? But it's real juice. It's real. And in its realness, you and I are called to remember the realness of Christ's blood shed for you and I. So let's take a moment, uh, and at, 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 your, at your leisure, um, Look, come to this table. I want to ask that our, our deacons uh, and elders, those folks that are they're serving alongside us, uh, would come. Uh, I do want to, just from a practical standpoint, let you know there is a gluten-free option. I know we've got some folks that, that are celiac to struggle with that. That is an option if you need it. Um, but come, come to this table. Yeah, go on this side. Uh, but come to this table and have this spiritual meal and be filled. These are gifts of God for the people of God. Come and receive